Welcome to the podcast of Faith Presbyterian Church here in Clinton, Louisiana. I'm glad you found us. My name is Tony Piles, and I'm the pastor here. I pray this recording brings you encouragement and growth in Christ, and we would love for you to join us in person anytime you are in town. Check our website, faithchurchclinton.org, for our current schedule of worship and Bible studies. And may God bring you blessing through what you're about to hear. Thank you. All right. We're back in 2 Samuel this evening. We're in chapter 6, which is both tied very carefully with chapter 5 and tied forward with chapter 7. So I think we even talked about a couple of pieces of it last week as we were talking about how it and chapter 5 relate to one another. So just a quick recap. In the last chapter, David was anointed king over a united kingdom of Israel and Judah. He established a new capital through the conquest and rebuilding of Jerusalem. And his dynasty is, is very secure, we could say, with the birth of a whole host of sons. Uh, so we commented last week on there were pieces that showed up in chapter 5 that are like the shadow of things that will happen later. So although it's all, it's all roses at the moment, there are couple of hints of things to come. Uh, we also considered how David's enthronement reflects some of just what you would expect from any king coming to power in the ancient Near East, right? He, he builds a new capital uh, through conquest and building. Uh, he builds a dynasty with lots of sons. One missing piece is the establishment of a temple in the new capital. And this chapter is going to begin to address that, but it's not going to go the way David expects. But that does raise the question, right? Saul was chosen by the people and by the Lord to be their first king, but he wasn't the king they needed, even if he was the king they thought they wanted. But he started to become more and more like just any other ancient Near Eastern king. And that was a major piece of his downfall, that and his refusal to submit to the Lord. Well, now the question is, what about David? Is he going to be like Saul or even more like Saul was trying to become? Or is he going to be different? And what is going to set him apart if something's going to set him apart? So we usually think about that question of, building a temple, we associate it more with chapter 7, with David's actual expressed intent to build a house for God, and God saying, no, I'm going to build you a house. Um, But we start to see that here in chapter 6, when he moves the ark, so and tries to bring the ark to his new capital. So let's read the chapter, and then we'll talk about it. 2 Samuel chapter 6. Actually, let's, let's pray first. Lord, we thank you for this evening. We thank you for king cake and desserts and coffee and fellowship. But we thank you even more for your word and for your people and for the opportunity to read your word with your people. We have much wisdom here around this table as we learn from one another, but 
We could have all the wisdom in the world and could not make heads or tails of your word without the help of your spirit. And so we ask your help as we read, as we discuss, as we ponder this evening, as we continue to ponder what we have read throughout the week. We ask for your spirit's help, that we might understand your word more clearly, that we might see how David points us to Jesus. And we ask these things in his precious name. Amen. All right. Second Samuel 6. David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God. And Ahio went before the ark. And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error. And he died there beside the ark of God. And David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah. And that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day. And he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David. But David took it aside to the house of Obed-Eden, the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. Now it was told King David, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. As the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. And they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts and distributed among all the people the whole multitude of Israel, both men and women, a cake of bread, a portion of meat, and a cake of raisins to each one. Then all the people departed, each to his house. And David returned to bless his household. But Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David And said, how the king of Israel honored himself today, uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants, female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. And David said to Michael, it was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord. And I will celebrate before the Lord. 
I will make myself yet more contemptible than this, and I will be abased in your eyes. But by the female servants of whom you have spoken, by them I shall be held in honor. And Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death. All right. Yes, sir. Why six steps? Why six steps? That's a really good question because that's the number of steps, right? That's the number of steps they did. So verse 13, right? Uh, Those who bore the ark of the Lord, uh, when they had gone six steps, he sacrificed. Maybe there's something about six verses seven. So that before they had gone a whole six steps, they wanted to offer sacrifice. We are probably meant to see this as they offered a sacrifice after they took six steps. Not every six steps they stopped and offered another sacrifice. Some folks understand it that way. That would, that would take forever to take the ark anywhere. But yeah, before they've gone a handful of yards, right? But why six? I don't know. That's my best guess is they saw seven steps as a complete number of steps. And so before they reached, you know, we might say before they had taken even 10 steps. But for them, seven was the, the more important number than 10. Six days of creation. Yeah, and seven being the whole week. Yeah. The seventh day rest and sacrifice. Yeah. Well, yeah. So we see the seven a lot as this idea of fullness or completion. <clears throat> we see it, especially with days. We see it with weeks. We see it with years. And so I do think that's there's something to that that they do it after the sixth before they reach the number of completion. So. This chapter's always bothered me. Okay, yeah. Yeah, I, I figured this was going to bother some people. So what? This, this I was just going to find it would be all week. Yeah, we've been discussing this all week. A one and e five is an apron. Okay, David has on an apron. And then he's exposing himself. So was his hiding in the freeze or something? Something was being exposed. Yeah, because of okay, the yeah. top, and she thinks that's all she was wearing. I, I, I mean, Michael said he exposed himself, so something was being exposed. Good. I don't think we get into this until a little bit later. This is a good discussion. So, David's doing all of these things, left and right. And a whole lot of what David is doing smells, looks, sounds like what a priest does. Not what a king does. And in the midst of a discussion of that, he's offering sacrifices. He's leading worship. He's dancing with all his might. There's that comment on in verse 14. And David was wearing a linen ephod. Now, I think we tend to interpret the linen ephod in light of what Michael says. In light of what's going on in the paragraph where we see it. And in the paragraph where we see it, David is doing priestly things. And an ephod is a priestly garment. And so he is decked out as a priest leading this worship procession. Um, 
I don't think that that's meant to say he's out there in cotton undies and nothing else. <laughs> that's how we usually interpret it, right? Because of what Michael says. But if if that's not what is meant by the linen ephod, if this if what it's telling us is he's he's wearing a priestly garment and he's in the midst of worship and doing all these priestly things, and, and we'll circle back to that because that should bother us too, actually. But if we take that and we come to what Michael says. We tend to interpret what she says in terms of David's running around naked or close enough to it that this would get a PG-13 rating, right? And I don't think that's necessarily what she is saying. The words she is using can mean that. Uncovered, exposure, they can mean like he's stripping off clothes and just letting it all hang out. But it can also mean that he's let his guard down, he is hanging out with people beneath his station, that he's rubbing shoulders with the wrong folks. And so the import might not be David's running around naked with the female servants, but that David, who should be the king, and remember Michael grew up in Saul's household, And so she's thinking of the kingship in terms of how Saul ruled. And Saul kept himself insulated from the people. And kept this idea and presentation of himself that presented a barrier. Where David is right in the midst of the throng of the common people. Laughing and dancing and praising and worshiping with no secret service agents anywhere inside. Populist. He's just one of the, sure, he's a populist. He's one of the guys. He's right there with him. And I think that's actually the import of, and that's the the tenor of what Michael is saying and, and why she despises him. David, you're supposed to be the king. You're supposed to be my husband, and I am the daughter of a king and the wife of a king. But my husband is out there hanging out with the riffraff. Walking among them, dancing with them, with no separation. And I think maybe that changes how we understand it. Now there's there's other pieces there. There is definitely a, a deliberate use of language that could mean exposing himself. But but we're reading what Michael says backwards, right? Because it says David's wearing a linen ephod and he's dancing. It doesn't say a linen ephod is all he was wearing. She's the only one who says things about him uncovering himself. That's not pointed out by the narrator. And that would have been a major red flag in terms of cleanliness and priestly regulations and how worship was to be conducted. And in fact, the priests are supposed to wear special undergarments so that they don't accidentally expose themselves when they go up the steps to the altar. Right? So if David is clothed in such a way that kind of bypasses all of that, well, he's probably going to get struck dead just like Uzzah did. And he doesn't. So, so I do think she's using language that brings that to mind on purpose. To shame him. 
But it's almost like we're we're reading David's earlier actions with Michael instead of with the narrator. Does that make sense? I like that explanation. It's better than Fabulous Honey hanging out. <laughs> the 22 kind of explains that, what you're saying. You can understand it that way. Yeah. Because, you know, he's, in Michael's eyes, you know, she's the social elite and he's hanging out with the servant. He'd be contemptible by her, but yet the servants and the normal people appreciate him. Yeah, I like that. It's difficult to explain what he says in verse 22, that, that those servant girls would hold him in honor if he's shaming himself along the lines that Michael wants us to read it as. So, because surely they would despise him too. At least after they went home and told their mothers what they saw, right? So. And hanging out outside of his class. <laughs> That's a better way to hang out. <laughs> now, I didn't think that was going to be the first thing that came up in this chapter that bothered people. So. There's, there's a lot in here that bothers people. Okay, so we've, we've dealt with the exposed thing in the cotton underpants. So... What else stands out in the chapter? I, I think David just appears emotionally unstable. He, he's totally angry about the death of Uzzah. And so he's really angry and won't have anything to do with the ark. And then all of a sudden he sees this, these people mm-hmm. being blessed by the ark. So let me go get the ark. And then he's jubilant and crazy and dancing mm-hmm. and partying. He just, he's Bipolar. <laughs> yeah. I was going to say the same thing. Is David bipolar? Makes sound like your old Michael's side. I can write that down. Because Michael, you know, Michael detested him early on in the chapter. It's like, does she, does she think that he, his personality is unfit for a king? Not that her father was Good. We'll dig into that a little bit, because that's a good question. There's a lot going on in the chapter. Ezra. Why is David acting like a beast? Like a beast? A beast? Beast. Beast. Yeah, yeah. and that's another. Why is David acting like a priest? So so here's, here's a question. Are David's... What are David's motives in bringing the ark to Jerusalem? Or to put it differently, at... Whose instigation is the ark moved? Who takes the initiative for moving the ark? David. David. Does the Lord give any indication that he wants the ark moved? No. At no point in the chapter does the Lord give any indication that he wants the ark moved. Which leads us to ask, why does David want to move the ark? Why does he want to bring the ark into his new capital? Because it perceived power. Perceived power. He wants the blessing. David is treating the ark, at least at the beginning of the chapter, the same way the Israelites were when they lost it. They thought if they bring it into their camp when they're fighting the Philistines, then they would be guaranteed a win. 
David thinks, if I bring the ark into my new capital, I and the people will be blessed. He is treating it like a gigantic rabbit's foot. Right? Like a rabbit's foot that you've got to load up on a cart. Except you're not supposed to. Right? You're not supposed to. He's treating it. His motives are mixed at best. Right? He's treating it the same way Israel did. And there are hints of that even in the way the ark is referred to. We've had this whole chapter about David being anointed king. And then the ark gets its full name when it's mentioned. And there are some other details about it, right? David takes 30,000 men of Israel. That's a lot. That sounds like you've mobilized an army. Why do you need to mobilize an army to move the ark? Right? He goes with all the people with him to Baalad Judah. This is a different name for the same place, Kiriath Jerim, which is the place where the ark came to rest, right? It comes back from the Philistines at the end of 1 Samuel chapter 6, comes first to Beth Shemesh. The people of Beth Shemesh are like, ooh, it's the ark. And then they open it up and look at it, and a whole bunch of them die. So then they're like, ooh, it's the ark. And it gets moved to Kiriath Jerim, and it ends up at Abinadab's house on the hill in Kiriath Jerim, and he puts his sons in charge of taking care of it. And now... It's in Baal Judah, and it's on the hill, right, in Abinadab's house on the hill. We get that from verse 3. So Baal Judah is just, right, the same place. So whether it's naming the region instead of the specific town or the neighborhood within the town or just another name for the town, I don't know. But it's been there the whole time from over 20 years before Saul's reign begins to whatever point in David's reign he decides to move the ark. It's been there. It's not been a problem. It's been looked after by the same family. It's been resting in the same place. And now David decides he wants to move it. And it's called, it's referred to as the ark of God which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts who sits enthroned on the cherubim. There's a couple ways. These are names for God. These are ways of referring to the ark. But if David has just mobilized 30,000 men and the Lord is called the Lord of the armies, which is what hosts means, right? that hits a little bit differently. And if we've just spent a whole chapter talking about David being an anointed king over all of Israel, this united kingdom of Israel and Judah, and the Lord is referred to here as the one who sits enthroned on the cherubim. Right, the cherubim which were on the top of the mercy seat, which was on top of the ark. Then that too hits a little bit differently. Right? David just mobilized a 30,000-man army to go down and move the throne of the God of armies who has cherubim at his command. 
That's a little ominous and probably a little critical of what David's about to try also. So David had to know the previous directives that God had given regarding transporting the ark. So why was he not obedient to that? Yes. They had done priests, one or the other. So that is an excellent question. What do they, how do they decide to transport the ark? A cart. They decide to transport the ark the same way the Philistines decided to transport the ark. Now, well-intentioned pagans are excused from not knowing better, right? And they do the best that they can. And they build a new ark because they know that you can't treat a god the way you treat hay, right? And they take animals that have never, ever been used to work a field or to pull carts or anything like that. And they put them with the ark for the same reason. Because you can't use old stuff for the God. And that is not how the Lord said the ark is to be moved. But he lets the Philistines do that. And the ark comes back to Israel by that means. And the cart becomes the wood to, to have the fire to offer the animals that pulled it for sacrifice in celebration of the ark returning. Right? But we get stipulations for how the ark is supposed to be moved. We get them partly in Exodus 25. And partly in Numbers 14. Sorry, Numbers 4. Numbers 4, 1 through 15. And in Exodus 25, it's verses 13 through 15. In Exodus 25, in the instructions for building the ark, part of the instructions include making slots on the side and having gold-plated poles that go through those rings, and they stay in the rings. And that's so that people can pick it up by the poles and carry it without touching it, without ever coming into direct contact with it. And in Numbers, we find that the priests are supposed to take care of everything, and cover things up so that it can't be seen. And then a specific tribe of the Levites, the Kohathites, are responsible for coming in and picking it up and carrying it. But it's, it's covered before they come in. They carry it to where it goes and the priests come in and they deal with everything. This has been in Abinadab's house for probably 40, 50 years. It's been a long time. Even if he's not a Kohathite himself, he's had an awful lot of time to research how this is supposed to be handled. And he's got motivation for doing so because it arrived at his house having killed Philistines and having killed men in Beth Shemesh. So he's had all the motivation in the world to go and learn how to treat this respectfully and treat it right, even if he didn't know upon its arrival. This is written in the law. The priests should know it. The Levites should know it. They should be teaching everybody else, although we know what that was like um, before Samuel came along. But on top of that, Deuteronomy 17 
verses 18 through 20. At the end of the section of the law of the king, telling us when you want a king, you may have a king. This is what your king should not do. This is what your king should do. The king is to write out by hand under the supervision of the priests so we can't fudge it, his own copy of the law. And then he's supposed to have it with him all the time and read in it every day so that he might not turn to the right hand or to the left, so that he can keep it. There was every reason for David who wanted it moved and for the people doing the moving to know better than they did. Without that background, we see the ark's on a cart and the oxen stumble and Uzzah reaches out because he doesn't want the ark to fall and God strikes him dead. And isn't God mean? But the only reason the ark is in danger of falling is because they've been treating the Lord's instructions for how to handle the physical representation of the Lord's presence among his people in contempt. They've taken his instructions for how to treat him reverently and they've thrown them out the window. This was bad news from the beginning. But the actual coming into contact directly with the ark, which would have been impossible if the instructions were followed, is as it were the last straw. As that breach of holiness is committed and he struck down for it. That puts Uzzah's action in a different light. Is it on David or is it on his priest? Or is it on, who, who's, who's it? I guess the buck stopped with him, huh? Yeah, I think the answer to that is yes. Where does the buck stop? Does it stop with the priest? Does it stop? Obviously, it stopped along the way with Uzzah. Well, that's a big question that we're not entirely sure of because we don't get, you guys are going to hate me for saying this, we don't get a genealogy for Abinadab, right? If we got a genealogy for Abinadab, we'd know a little bit more. We'd know, was he, did he belong to a priestly family? Did he belong specifically to the Kohathites or not? But he had every opportunity to know better or to have learned better. David had absolutely no excuse. So when David's angry, he's not mad at God for being mean. His anger is a response to the whole situation. That he should have known better, that they should have known better, that now the Lord who seems to have been with him seems to be opposing him. So what does this mean for him? What does this mean for his reign? What does this mean for his nation? Is God going to just wash his hands of the whole thing? Because now God's an enemy. Which raises the question, okay, is David going to be like Saul? Is is this the end? Right? Because Saul despised the Lord's instructions. When he was confronted with it, 
He denied, he deferred, he blamed, never repented. Never repented. Right? Would finally get to a point where he didn't want to lose face. And so he would grovel with Samuel and say, I'm sorry. But the response was never one of repentance. What will happen with David? So what does David do? Right? How does the chapter continue from there after David is angry? Right, first he just turns it aside, but then he goes to Obed-Edom's house. And we don't know who Obed-Edom is. Gittite doesn't really help because that just means he's from a town called Winepress. And there's a whole bunch of those, right? There's one in Philistine territory, but he's probably not a Philistine. There's a whole bunch in Israel that could be in reference to as well. But the, the ark stays at his house for three months. And the Lord blesses not just Obed-Edom, but his entire household. Right? So there's a couple ways of reading David receiving the news, right? Because he gets the news in verse 12 and he decides to move the ark in, in the second half of verse 12. So is this David going, oh, the rabbit foot works after all, right? Or is this perhaps a recognition on David's part that the Lord has not forsaken Israel, That with proper precautions, with due obedience, perhaps the ark can be moved. Looks like he did it the right way the second time. Is this that those who bore the ark? Yes. Uh, oxen. Yes. So if you look at verse 13, you're right. When those who bore the ark, some of your translations will even say carry there. So we have people carrying the ark now. If we read down a little further, they're bringing it to a tent David has prepared for it. So preparations have been made. He seems to have gone back and read the law or perhaps talked with the priests about what went wrong. And now he is treating it respectfully. He's doing what should be done. He's walking in obedience. Yes, sir. David just, the Bible says that David just went to He's the one who sacrifices. He's the one who's doing what a priest should be doing. Good. Okay. Priest? Well, we'll circle back to that. That's a really good question. What is going on with David acting like a priest? It seems like he sort of combined <laughs> judge and priest into one mm. category. So... Before we move to that, and that is a, something I do want to talk about, notice what we've already kind of mentioned from a couple different sides. David learns from his mistakes, and he changes what he does. We've talked about this at several points along the way. It seems to be the case, right? That when Saul is confronted with his sin, he digs in, he denies, he points, right? He doesn't turn. He doesn't repent. When David tries to bring the ark and it's disastrous because he's not treating the ark the way it's supposed to be treated, when he 
moves the ark again, he has changed what he's doing. He has read in the law. He has altered his practice. He has turned and repented. Not just with words, but with with visible action. He has been going one direction and he has turned around and is going the other. He's not moving it on another cart, right? There are people carrying it now, which should have been the case in the first place. Let's keep reading over the rest of Second Samuel to see, okay, is this a one-time thing? Or is this something that is going to characterize David and how he responds to conviction of sin? Because we know that Saul sinned, sure. David's going to sin. And some of David's sin is going to look a whole lot worse than Saul's. But how does David respond to that sin? And the, the suggestions we've made, will they be borne out by the remainder of the chapters? I think this chapter would suggest that we're on the right track with that. But... What about David doing all these priestly things? Right? I'm supposed to be priests doing that. So why do we have someone who's not a priest doing that? Well, we've got several spanners in the works as far as that goes. Um, in my marker. There we go. There we go. <clears throat> Solomon's going to do the same thing. And he's not going to get in trouble for it. Right? When the temple is dedicated... He's going to offer a whole bunch of sacrifices. He's going to lead worship. He's going to offer this huge prayer. But we get a few chapters down the road in Kings. And a king is going to do something that belongs to the office of a priest. And he's going to get struck with leprosy for it. There are going to be huge consequences. As we get into the book of Kings, there's this clear demarcation. Kings belong over there. Priests belong over there. And they might talk to each other, but they don't do each other's job. So what's going on here? A couple ways to handle it. One is to say, well, you know what? That actually doesn't become a hard and fast rule until after Solomon, which is why David can do it and why Solomon doesn't get in trouble for it. And I can see on some of your faces that that doesn't sit very well with you. I'm not sure how I feel about that either. That's one suggestion that's been made. Another, I think more likely suggestion, is that the language is direct and takes out the middleman, but probably what happens is David is having the sacrifices offered by others. And the, and the language just, it doesn't paint the full picture for us. The offerings are perhaps provided by David, made at his expense, but the priests are doing the offering. And I think that's likely. And often the language will just cut out some of that stuff in the middle. We saw that in Matthew 2, actually. When Herod, uh, or we will see it this Sunday, when Herod dispatches people to kill the children in Bethlehem and the surrounding region, Our translations will capture it different ways because it's phrased in a very succinct way. But the way it's phrased essentially means he had somebody else do it. He did it, 
but he did it through intermediaries. And so that may very well be what's going on here. But the other wrinkle is Psalm 110, which Jesus refers to, right? I'm a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. David is not a Levitical priest. David is not a son of Aaron. But David is king of Salem, right? Salem's another name for Jerusalem. Melchizedek was king of Salem. Melchizedek was a priest and king. Is David then also a priest? Psalm 110 is that one that it's, it's the New Testament's favorite psalm. Jesus uses it to stump the, the leaders of the Jews, right? How can, the, how can David, if, if the Christ is supposed to be David's son, then how can David say of his son, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand. How can he be both David's son and David's Lord? But later in that same psalm, right? says, the Lord is sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. This is a psalm of David. David is writing this. So is it possible, perhaps, that David can do priestly things because he also is a priest as well as a king? And his, his future people, his future lineage would still be in that lineage. And if they, if God struck him with leprosy, then it, it, doesn't, right. it doesn't follow the turn. Good question. Right. So if it's, if David's a priest, order of Melchizedek, whatever, then wouldn't it be true that his, his descendants are priests? Not necessarily. And that may be what distinguishes, in part, uh, the priestly order of Melchizedek from the Aaron's sons. Right. With Aaron's sons, it's clearly laid out that this is a, a, a genealogical priesthood, right? that it continues through generations, that only those who can trace their lineage back to Aaron, even within the clan of the Levites, only those who can trace their lineage back to Aaron may serve as priests. But it doesn't follow necessarily that priests in the order of Melchizedek hand that down from father to son. And that's part of what may be going on in the discussion about Melchizedek in Hebrews. Right? That gets really, really weird. But he's, you know, he's one without genealogy. He has no father. So he is really interesting really quick. Yes, sir. If he's a priest, then why does he need, why has At what point does the statement in Psalm 110 happen? Yeah. That's a good question. This is as close as we can come to an answer about why David can do these priestly things and it's okay, but why his descendants do priestly things and that's not okay. Right? Is either just, yeah, it was okay for David. 
for one reason or another, because it was, there wasn't this hard and fast rule yet, or because David actually is a priest, or he's doing this through intermediaries. Right? David is, despite the, the succinctness of the language, David is actually having the priests offer the sacrifices. We said Solomon did the same thing. Yeah, yeah we have descriptions very similar when Solomon dedicates the completed temple, 1 Kings 8, around there. So. And his wife wasn't very Catholic. Yeah. Solomon's a mess. Solomon also does something else that that uh, he doesn't get in trouble for that later kings do. Solomon offers worship to the Lord on the high places. But the temple hadn't been dedicated yet. So after that, worship on the high places is always associated with worshiping foreign gods uh, or with illicit sanctuaries, worshiping God according to means that he has said are not okay. This whole discussion, by the way, with Uzzah, with can David do priestly things with the high places, this raises the question of what we Presbyterians like to call the regulative principle of worship. We like big words, right? But the regulative principle of worship, I can't even get all the syllables in there, is just simply a way of saying we are only free to worship God in ways he has instructed. We're not free to do whatever we want in worship. We can only do what God requires. We can't innovate. That sounds really restrictive. Sometimes it is. It's also really freeing. Like it's freeing to go to a worship service and leave alive. Right? <laughs> like like Nadab and Abihu don't get to do, right? Now, the ephod, was that only a priest outfit? I don't think it's necessarily only a priest's outfit, but it's consistently associated with priests. This would, I think, be the only instance of the word in First and Second Samuel where it's not associated with a priest. If we're supposed to understand it as something else. Right? The first mention of something like it is with Samuel, but it's when he's serving at the sanctuary. Uh, and then it comes with the priest when he flees to David. And then it's always with the priest. And then it's mentioned here, but in the midst of a, of a very priestly procession. Has David put it on before? In first Samuel? I don't think so. He's he's used it to inquire of the Lord. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Well, we've we've talked about that a couple of times when it occurred because before that it, it's always mentioned in conjunction with I believe Abiathar, and then it mentions David inquiring through the ephod and it doesn't mention Abiathar, but based on everything else we've seen, we would have assumed in those instances. Maybe we're wrong, but we would have assumed in those instances that. He's able to do it because Abiathar is there with it. So maybe we were wrong to make that assumption. I just wonder, I mean, why would he feel free to do it now versus if he hadn't done it before? You know? Yeah. 
It may be that he's wearing a linen ephod and not the ephod. That's possible. The generic garment associated with a priest and not the one that has the stones for the the tribes of Israel or the one that has you know, a pocket for the Urim and a pocket for the Thummim for casting lots before the Lord. <laughs> what do you guys think about all the instruments in verse 5? It's funny looking at different English translations because they've got most of the same instruments, but they don't all have them in the same order. So the ESV has, uh, and David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. We know what a lyre is, we know what a harp is, but the rest of the words we're actually not sure. And the first word that the ESV has as songs here might just mean firwood. Firwood. In other words, all sorts, all manner of instruments made of wood, including some of the following. Insert list of instruments. Yeah. So the NIV says harps, lyres, tambourines, sistrums, and cymbals. So mm-hmm. the sistrum castanet. Castanets, I think of the little, yeah. little finger things. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Guitars, basses, trumpets, and banjos. And snare drums. Where'd you see that somewhere? <clears throat> no, no. <laughs> Trying to capture all the different, yeah. Look at all the instruments made of All different kinds. The new is instruments made of Yes, yeah. This is kind of like a castanet, but it's different. It's kind of ornate. Mm. Yeah, the, the Hebrew word there is um, firwood. Uh, and then some of the ancient versions looked at that and scratched their head and put in different words. So one put in the word for songs and then a whole bunch of different instruments. One put in the word for organ and then a whole bunch of different instruments, which might, you know, probably doesn't mean a pipe organ. It probably just means kind of instrument. And then we have examples of it. So... If we were going to try and recreate this procession with the specific instruments that David used, we're, we're just going to be at a loss. But we get the sense that the procession was accompanied with loud, rich music from essentially all the different kinds of instruments they had at their disposal. Yeah. And Michael, Michael was out of ibuprofen, right? <laughs> Well, she didn't appreciate it very much. They all were yeah. on the same tune or something, you know. Here's, here's one playing Peter Cocktail and another playing <laughs> Oh, oh, yeah, you do. Yep. 
I remember being at a concert one time and they found out it was somebody's birthday. And so they decided to play happy birthday, but the guy leading the band turned around and said, okay, you play it in C, you play it in D, you play it in E, you play it in F. It was pretty funny. They didn't all play it at the same tempo either. Oh, I, I can imagine that's probably what happened here. Mm-hmm. With symbols and stuff. I think there's potential for that. That it could have devolved into something loud and ugly. But I think the picture that we see was painted for us is of beauty and joy and unity. So I suspect as as puzzling as that list of instruments was, and as much as there is that seems to be going on, even with people dancing with all their might back and forth, who probably didn't know how to dance, probably hadn't even tried since middle school, there was something beautiful about it. And I think actually it tells us something about Michael's heart, the way she responds to that. You may have encountered something like this in your own life where the Lord is doing something beautiful and you can see and reflect on that beauty, but maybe it's messy, maybe it's just a lot going on, maybe it's just different. And you try and share that with someone who doesn't love the Lord. And all they can see are all the things that are displeasing about it. That that thing is disorganized. Or that that child's running around without a parent. Or that that plate fell over and it's on the carpet. And they can't see any of the beauty of that. And and the way Michael is characterized here is just unrelentingly negative. In this incredible celebration of David's reign and the Lord's blessing over it, she is the lone representative of the house of Saul. She is not out there celebrating with the people. She stayed home. She perceives David in the midst of that celebration by looking through the window. Think about movies and TV shows and even books you've read. When somebody looks out the window and sees something, what kind of person is that usually? It's the nosy neighbor, right? Or it's the guy who... It's Jimmy Stewart getting involved in something he should have, shouldn't, right? And might get murdered for it, right? And it's, it's so much more than that in the Old Testament. I looked, and every time it's mentioned that someone looks through a window, it's negative, except maybe one time. Abimelech looks through the window, and that's where he sees Isaac with Rebekah doing something that clues him in that they're husband and wife. Jezebel looks through the window down at, um, I can't remember his name. I have to click on it. Um, Jehu, I believe. 
And then it's her eunuchs look through the window next, a couple of verses later. And of course, they're the ones that throw her down. Uh, Sisera's mom looks through the window in Judges, wondering when her son is going to come home from killing those Israelites. Uh, and then we have it here. It's always reflecting poorly on what's happening, but usually it's reflecting poorly on the person looking through the window. And that's where we meet Michael in this scene. She's at home. She's away from the celebrations and she's peering through the window. Like that nosy neighbor or like Jezebel. And then when she meets David, she meets him with biting sarcasm. Sees his worship with, in the midst of, out in the middle of the crowd of the common people as the king just utterly and completely degrading himself. Walking around like a common fool. David is out there joyfully celebrating all that God is doing. And to her, he looks like one of the drunks on the bridge on Perkins Road watching the Mardi Gras parade. That's all he is to her at that moment. But David sees it differently, right? The Lord chose me above your father and all his house to put me over Israel. And I'm not going to shrink back from celebrating what God is doing. In fact, this is going to continue and I will be even more abased in your eyes. But these common people that you think you're too good for, I'll be honored in theirs. And what's the outcome of the chapter? Yeah, yeah, the mechanics are not spelled out for us. We've got a lot of guesses. But what's made clear is that she never bears a child her entire life long. Which means the break between the house of David and the house of Saul is complete. Saul had been told through Samuel all the way back in chapter 13, before we met Jonathan, who seemed so promising. In 1 Samuel 13, um, Saul's dynasty is rejected. 1 Samuel 13, 13, and 14. So there will, there will never be a house of Saul that rules over Israel. And here we see that cemented because David may be married to a daughter of Saul, but she will not bear any royal sons. She turns out an awful lot like her dad. More concerned with the image of what a ruler should be than with delighting in the Lord and following him in worship. 
more concerned with what people think than, than what God thinks. Yeah. More concerned with what people think than with what God thinks. <clears throat> but if, if that was a, uh, if she were able to bear children, then that would be a, a combination of Saul's uh, and David's kingdoms, which would yeah and the narrator will will keep going for a little bit with the threat of a possible rival from the house of Saul but it won't come from within David's household the possibility of this mixing of the house of David and the house of Saul completely cut off at this point Mephibosheth is still around Mephibosheth himself, almost certainly not a functional rival for David. But Mephibosheth might bear sons. Well, Mephibosheth's wife, pardon. (laughs) Sons may come from Mephibosheth, who would serve as a rival for David. And that will become a live question later as Mephibosheth is brought into David's house. But then a, a coup arises from within David's house and there will be an accusation against Mephibosheth that he saw it as an opportunity to take hold of his father's kingdom again. So we'll see how that's borne out and whether that's a a justification with grounds when we get there. David, priest and king in this chapter. We've talked about how he may or may not himself be doing the priestly things and that leaves us scratching our heads. But the combination of those things in this chapter are part of how Samuel points us beyond David. Because Jesus does combine those offices. He is our king in the line of David. He is our Priest, not an Aaronic priest, a priest in the order of Melchizedek, but one who offers himself on our behalf and intercedes for us at God's right hand. And we will also see him as a prophet. So we'll talk about that more as we continue, as it comes up in other books. But if you want to read a book that talks about that at length and leaves, also leaves you scratching your head a whole lot, you can look at the book of Hebrews. All right, let's pray. Then we'll eat some more king cake. Lord, we thank you for this evening. We thank you for thank you for protecting us through the rain yesterday, for keeping us dry. We thank you for your word and for the opportunity to discuss it together this evening. Father, we pray that you would reward our reading, our pondering, our puzzling, our curiosity by increasing our understanding and deepening our wonder. May we find the Bible as, to be as Spurgeon described it to us, as a book that grows with us, such that we can never plummet its depths, but always find new riches there. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.
You've been listening to the podcast of Faith Presbyterian Church here in Clinton, Louisiana. Check our website, faithchurchclinton.org, for more teaching and for our current schedule of events if you'd like to drop in. We pray this recording has been a blessing to you. Go in peace.